common thing nowadays, especially what we've been going through the last five or six months, mm-hmm. is people feel overwhelmed. Yeah. So not everyone has that capability of reducing or minimizing and focusing, right? Because focus is fundamental. And how does one really get focused? All other things aside, you have to be ready mm-hmm. to do that. Yeah. How do you know if you're ready to do that? What are the signs that you're ready to do? Well, I can only speak for myself. Go ahead. I tend to look at things as two sides of the equation in terms of if I don't do this, what will happen? And if I do do this, what will happen? You're listening to The Sill Podcast with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Episode 133, pH factor, becoming other, if not now, when? Typically, changes come up one of only three ways. It's either unexpected, okay. a traumatic experience, okay. or a planned event. You're actually planning to make a change. Mm-hmm. Now, I'd add a fourth. Okay. I would say there is change that is simply organic. Changes due to aging. Natural changes. Oh, okay. Not really unexpected. Traumatic, necessarily. Yeah. And not planned. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you don't plan to get old. You do. Right. So, in some ways, I think there's a fourth there. Let me ask you this. Okay. Do you feel that mm. you are essentially or profoundly different now than you were when you were a young boy, deep, deep down? Deep, deep down, I would say no. How do you know that? And that's the question that I ask myself. I'm at a stage now where I'm actually being more true to myself than I've ever been. Okay. And when I think back to my childhood, and this is how I'm answering your question, I see that there's a lot of alignment between what I was as a preteen and teen Mm -hmm. and what I am today. Of course... There's a lot of other elements that go with it. Do you mean alignment in terms of your emotional response to things? Not just my emotional response, my actual feelings, what I enjoy, what what are my personality traits. Your self-perception. Self-perception, exactly. Because other people might not agree with what I'm saying. People that know me may not agree. Mm -hmm. Frankly, growing up, at least for me, a lot of shifting the life experience primarily You then take those elements. And of course, are you shifting? Are you changing? Yes. First of all, I'm more open to change Mm -hmm. because I understand more. Yeah. And I can be convinced in a debate, if someone presents a case to me that makes sense, that's different from mine, I will actually attempt to make that shift. And sometimes I have. Yeah. In terms of what you asked me originally, do I feel that I'm fundamentally the same? I see the same particular characteristics and traits now that I did when I was much younger. Yeah, yeah. The difference being is that there were so many other factors opposing me then, or at least in my head, Mm -hmm. as opposed to now where I'm closer to the other end of life. And a lot of it is just natural, as you mentioned before, about the aging process, which was an organic change. Yeah, right. So essentially, yes. But again, that's obviously very subjective. Mm -hmm. How about you? How do you feel about that? Well, for me... In some ways, I feel the same. I feel that, if I can put it this way, the skeletal structure of my deep 
character mm. has remained intact through all of these years, but with more flesh on the bones with experience. Right. The odd chink in the emotional, the deep core emotional bones from traumatic experiences. Of course. And that sort of thing. And we all go through them. If anything, the changes I've experienced are more realizations that I already have the capacities in me to respond in unique and interesting ways mm. that I never knew that I had. And that comes with time, experience, trauma, upset, love, loss of love, all the usual tribulations. It's a recognition that there was a lot more there to begin with than I knew when I was younger. Exactly. Which you don't know. You don't know yourself. Really. Right, ditto. And one of the words that came to me when you just said that, the word that came to me was confidence. Mm-hmm. There's a certain confidence that comes with experience and living life and going through various things, including trauma and so on, relationships. Yeah. Where you actually now can say with a little bit more confidence, mm -hmm. you're not swaying back and forth as much because you've overcome some of the things that caused yeah. you to lack the confidence to begin with. Well, experience is a good teacher, and we tend to trust our experience and the wisdom that we take from it as more truthful than stuff we're told or what we read, mm -hmm. what we should think. You say, well, no, I've experienced this, and this is how I see it, and you trust that. We have the face that we look at ourselves inwardly, there's that face. And then there's the face that we look out to the world that people see. And often the confidence is in the outer expression. Whereas inwardly, there still may be some questions and worry, and not, but our experience is such that we sort of have gained a certain confidence and we express that in the world. We're not worried at what comes back yeah. from expressing ourselves freely. So that is a change. And to me, it's a kind of an outer change in a way. Right. What I'm talking about here, what we're talking about is deep inner change. So I'll give you a yep. personal example from my own life. Many years ago, before I met my current wife, I was single. Mm -hmm. And I was in the city of Toronto and living there. And a woman on the street came up to me. It was midnight, a total stranger. She had bruises on her face. And she was really upset and anxious. And she said to me, can you please help me? Hmm. I said, what? She said, I just come out of the hospital. My husband has beaten me. He beats me. And I am afraid to go home. I, I don't know what to do. And I mm -hmm. said, can you call the police? She said, no, I, I can't bring the police into this. It's going to make him even worse, et cetera, et cetera. And so basically I said to her, all right, look, it. you come home with me. You'll have a safe place, a shelter. Mm -hmm. where you're safe for a night, and then we can work this thing out in the morning. You can get help or you can go whatever. And so what was a, a one-night stay, and she said, fine, what was a one-night stay ended up being about six weeks because she was afraid to go home. Mm -hmm. She started to call her husband, and he would call the number back. And then and she's arguing with him, and da, 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 and finally he gets me on the line, about a week into it and says, look, she's lying. This woman is lying to you. She's an alcoholic, damn it. Mm. That's how she got her bruises. Mm. I didn't touch her, blah, da, 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 da. So now I'm in the middle of this thing. I don't know who to believe ultimately, mm -hmm. except that I'm now seeing that she does drink a lot. Mm -hmm. 
And I'm beginning to realize that, yes, this woman is an alcoholic. Doesn't mean that he hasn't beaten her. Right. But this woman is an alcoholic and she could be making things up. I don't know. Right. So all I could do was stay inside my intuitive feeling of care for another human being, a mm -hmm. total stranger that in a sense was love. I had to find a way to love this total stranger right. to keep her safe in a certain way until this thing could be sorted out. And it mm -hmm. took about six weeks, mm -hmm. several episodes of withdrawal where I got her off the booze and we went through three days and three nights of torture Right. Of DTs, delirium tremens, nightmares, sweats, the whole thing. And she'd come out of it and she'd be much better and happier. And then she'd fall back within a few days, etc. So back and forth. So I got to understand firsthand what it was like to live with an alcoholic. Right. So it drew out of me incredible experiences and thoughts and feelings and ideas mm -hmm. that I never would have experienced had I not shown that moment of care on the street and said, yes, come and stay with me. And that changed me profoundly. There's one example of how this kind of event, this kind of experience can change you. So um, what was your I've experience? Had, I've had a couple, but the most significant one was about, uh, I know exactly when it was. I know the day, I know the minute, just over 24 years ago. And without getting into a lot of details, I thought that I had lost my son. Mm-hmm. Again, there are a lot of factors leading to this, but that moment changed me. It made a possible change a definite change. So what was the change to? How did you change? Well, I made a pact with myself at that particular moment. Mm -hmm. And the pact remains with me because I wouldn't even know where to begin to explain to somebody what transpired in that moment because I've never experienced anything like it in my life. Everything, everything I knew, everything I thought, everything I felt did not exist. What do you mean? For a moment, nothing mattered. Nothing. Okay. Okay. Not my future, not my past, any relationship I had, all that mattered at that moment was to get past that moment. Please right. yep. bring him back. Did you find yourself inwardly praying in any way, shape, or form? I know even people who aren't religious say in those kinds of moments, I, I actually prayed and, you know, to say, if there is a God, please help. Did you have any sense of that at all? Yes, but probably not in a typical sense in that I was not delirious. It was a very clear kind of fix this. Yeah. And there will be no more questions about this. <laughs> 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 Again, I, you know, I don't want to get into the details in this podcast because it's a very personal thing and also out of respect for family and so on. My son's a very healthy young man in his 30s, doing very well. That moment passed, but that moment changed me. It made many things that I felt up to that point much clearer okay. and helped me understand why I felt many of the things that I did growing up and why I never acted on them. This moment changed me so dramatically. It was so emphatic that I told myself nothing will move me from the pact that I make this moment, whatever it costs me. Okay. I was ready to give up everything, marriage, work. But can you give me a sense for what the pact was that you made? Like, what did you sort of promise the universe that you would do or be more or less. In retrospect, perhaps 
Some would consider it ridiculous, but I made a pact with myself that he would never be out of my sight until a certain age or a certain time and that I would never be away from home. Okay. Okay. Which, and the reason why I hesitate to say this on the podcast is because it sounds like an excuse. No, it doesn't. Well, it can. If you, if you know my life, people that know me or, or close family members, it can be an excuse because the decision was so extreme that it affected many things, primarily financial, by the way. Because so your work life? Yeah, my work life completely changed. I, I mean, it was already changing. Things that were already happening. So it's not like that mm. caused it. Mm-hmm. This is not the cause right, right. of problems. But it, it was a definitive moment that basically put everything else second. And I mean everything. Yeah. I've never had anything happen to me like that before. Right. Although the birth of my granddaughter comes pretty close. Yeah. It sounds like you understood the essence of what it means to be a parent, ultimately. I mean, the pinnacle of what it means to be a parent is to have that feeling of, I would give my life for this child. And you went there, in a sense. I didn't think of myself as a parent. I I thought of of all the things that I was ignoring, of all the feelings that I had, the anger, the, the frustration, the the hurt that I carried, uh, you know, like millions of other people. But it also showed me the other side of me, which I've always known, and that is that I'm eternally optimistic despite challenges, that I do see life as a wonderful gift. Yeah. And this moment, for all its difficulty, brought this into like a black hole implosion. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. It all made sense. And in that moment, I thought of parents, I thought of childhood, marriage, my Mm -hmm. partner, Mm -hmm. my work. Yep. But it's not so different in a way, but on a different level. And that's a micro level. On a Mm. macro level, the whole COVID pandemic Mm. situation has done the same thing. It's thrown a light into that black hole that has exploded in so many levels, in so many areas of society that we've had to suddenly take a look at and reevaluate and realize that change has to happen. So the pandemic has made change something that is in the planned side of things. Right. Right? The trauma of the pandemic, which was unexpected, has resulted in people saying, now we have to plan the changes based upon that experience Mm -hmm. that will make life better for everyone. We've shared some individual stories, and it's easier on an individual level to make shifts and changes and right. stuff like that. Now, when we're talking about society, mm. for example, let's take climate change. Mm-hmm. That's something that is on everybody's lips in a way these days. Every political party has to say something about climate change. It, it exists. It doesn't exist. It's right. important. It's not important. But they have to address it. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't something that happened overnight, that change. In 1854, David Thoreau yeah. wrote the famous Walden's Pond, Pond yeah. about his experiences in nature. So this whole back to nature sort of idea the importance of nature and the environment began kind of there in a way. Then you have Rachel Carson in the early 1960s writing Silent Spring, talking mainly about pesticides and their effect on the environment. Great piece. The water, our food, etc., right. etc. Then you have, there's a lot in between, but then you have Al Gore, An Inconvenient Truth mm-hmm. in 2006, which 
really rippled and struck chords and reached a lot of people. Well, he had the advantage of the internet and media. Yeah, as that grows. So technology has an important yes. role to play in, in change. An we'll accelerant, yeah. It's an accelerant. And then, of course, right up to Greta Thunberg, traveling the world, mm-hmm. this 15-year-old girl, berating governments for not acting on climate change. Mm-hmm. And we still haven't really ultimately bitten the bullet and acted as a globe to deal with this issue. But there's a flow, there's an evolution, and there's a build that happens, a slow burn, if you like, mm-hmm. that reaches a certain potheosis that a change then flips over. So these larger societal changes take time. Look at cigarettes, same thing. Yeah, Cigarettes, right? right? Yep. They knew about the connection with cancer in the 1940s and 50s. That's how early we knew that cigarettes and cancer were connected in that way. Mm-hmm. But nothing really happened until 1965, when the Federal Cigarette Labeling and Advertising Act came in in the U.S., forcing cigarette manufacturers to put warnings on the packaging. Right. Health warnings. And people still smoke. Yeah. But a lot more people are aware and have changed, they've got off smoking or whatever, and made that change, that shift. But no matter how much awareness there is, and no matter how aware you are... For any change to occur, there has to be first a desire to make a change. Yeah. You cannot begin to change anything until, this is why oftentimes people look at other people and say, well, why are they doing this? And I've conquered this and they haven't and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Because that individual hasn't come to that decision yet. They haven't decided that a change would be something that they need to do or that would benefit them. So it's the same in society. So perhaps all these things that you mentioned, this buildup from the 1850s to the 1960s to 2006 on climate change, what it's doing slowly is it's making more and more people realize that this is a change that needs to happen. I want this change to happen. Yeah, or I buy into it, or I can see myself aligning with it. And technology, as you say, is an accelerant in the sense that it gets these ideas out to vast numbers of people. Mm -hmm. Whereas before, when Rachel Carson was writing her book in 1962, Mm -hmm. people had to read the book to get the idea and go, yeah, that makes perfect sense. I can buy into that. Now... If that kind of thing comes out, the Greta Thunberg, she's mm-hmm. on the cover of Time magazine. It's all over the internet. She's mm-hmm. everywhere. So it's a bit millions easier. of Millions of people in a few minutes. Yeah, it's easier to douse people with the accelerant and light a match mm-hmm. now, if I can put it that way, than it was in the 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. So that's the slow burn. But then you have the traumatic. That was one of your change agents, right? Right. So a good example of that, the change things on the planet, 9-11. And suddenly, the world was different overnight. Mm -hmm. Security everywhere. Airport security changed drastically. Mm -hmm. So many things happened at the level of security and safety and all that. That became the issue for everyone. So traumatic and unexpected. Mm -hmm. One of the things that comes to my mind as well with change is that change becomes more difficult I think significantly more difficult when you're attempting to change many things at once. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, because typically there are changes that occur that you can't really make one change without making another change. And I think the secret to that, again, my own experience, is that 
people who are more successful or situations that are more successful at making change tend to focus on one significant change at a time because you haven't made that first change that all those changes stem from. That first choice, that first decision. Right? Yeah. So whatever it is, you feel overwhelmed. And this is a common thing nowadays, especially what we've been going through the last five or six months, mm-hmm. is people feel overwhelmed. Yeah. So not everyone has that capability of reducing or minimizing and focusing, right? Because focus is fundamental. And how does one really get focused? All other things aside, you have to be ready Mm-hmm. to do that. Yeah. How do you know if you're ready to do that? What are the signs that you're ready to do Well, that? I can only speak for myself. Go ahead. I tend to look at things as two sides of the equation in terms of if I don't do this, what will happen? And if I do do this, what will happen? Okay. So you see it as an equation. Kind of. Right? Ultimately, uh, I, ha- I don't have all the answers. I'm kind of feeling my way through. The balance scales. You're looking, putting them on the balance scale. Yeah. And going, how does this weigh? Yeah. Um, or... How unhappy am I? Is it something that is tolerable, that is something that I can forego for an hour or two? Or is it a fundamental part of who I am and just messes up everything? And And I look at it in terms of I can't be my best self if I don't adhere to my best self. Yeah. We're always confronting a hundred things, a thousand things out there that are playing against you in terms of, Mm -hmm. well... If you do this, you're selfish. If you do that, you're not considering that. If you do this, well, it's not like you have 1,500 years to live. You know, you've got 60, 70, 40, whatever it is. There comes a point to me where it just becomes unbearable. Yeah. Let me put it to you this way. What you decide isn't necessarily what everybody else thinks you should decide. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the change isn't always necessarily positive for everybody around you. No, absolutely <laughs> not. I mean, uh, right. you could go live on a mountain in Tibet and decide to be a shepherd right. and walk away from all of the things that connect you to your city life, your family life, and all that stuff, mm-hmm. uh, which could be totally traumatic for people around you. But for you, it's absolutely necessary. And speaking for myself, that to me is the largest obstacle of all, because sometimes I know when I'm doing something, I know it may not be in the best interest of the people around me. But at what point do you stop? Yeah. Where does the word selfish come in, right? Right. People say, oh, look at this person. They're making these decisions selfish because they're okay about it. But Mm -hmm. what about their kids? What about their spouse? What about their parents? They're not happy about it. So they're being selfish in making that kind of decision. There's a balance, as you say, to be struck there. We're talking about changing habits. Right. In order to make changes. And there are many studies that have been done on this subject. And we as humans, there's a typical time frame. I think the figure that was thrown around was 66 days. To do what? To break a habit. Oh, okay. Now, it could be... 66 (laughs) days of waterboarding? I mean, (laughs) what has to happen? (laughs) I had this... I I think I'd change after 66 days of waterboarding, for sure. So, So I'll give you this. It says, most professionals say that it takes 21 to 30 days to make or break a habit. Researchers have pinpointed that the basal ganglia region of the brain as the region that controls habitual behavior. Tests have shown that when a new habit is learned, neurons fire differently in the basal ganglia. Neural activity also changes when that same habit is unlearned. 
but it'll easily change back again if the new habit is reiterated. Yeah. This explains why it's so tough to change old habits. You may reverse the way your neurons fire when you cease to smoke, but they'll change back immediately once you take that first puff. A 2009 study from the UK Health Behavior Research Center indicated that it takes 66 days to genuinely make or break a habit to the point where that new habit becomes your default behavior. The source is the University College in London. Whether it takes 21, 30, or 66 days, it's possible to change habits, which means that behavioral change can be a reality if the subject is able to stay the course. And where are you getting this information from? This is the University College of London. Okay. All right. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. I mean, even as a writer, Hmm. working with language, there are all kinds of habits. Language is nothing but a series of habits, if you like, called Hmm. grammar. Yep. And how we communicate is very habitual. And how we write can become habitual as well. So you see the form of the novel. You see genres of novel writing with crime fiction romance, whatever. Mm -hmm. These are habitual forms that we have agreed upon and bought into that writers fall into, whether they know it or not often. And even the style of writing can become very habitual. So as a writer, I'm very conscious when I write a sentence of how normal, if you like, uh, how habitual that sentence is and sounds. And I'm trying my damnedest at this point in my life and career as a writer to really break that mold, break the habit Mm -hmm. and change the way I work with grammar and sentence structure, etc. And really try to create something new. And that's a planned change. We talked about different types of changes. So that's a planned type of change. And typically, when things are good, you don't have to do anything. Exactly. Why fix it if it ain't broke is the feeling. Right. Adversity is what really creates the bed for change one way or the other. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a good change, but it's going to be a catalyst. But it's why also people do things like getting involved in extreme sports, climbing Mount Everest, going on a sailing expedition across the Atlantic, Mm -hmm. because there's going to be adversity. It's going to force you to look back on yourself and fall back on your deeper resources Mm -hmm. and realize that you are more than what you thought you were. And that's change. To be aware that we're more than we thought we were, that's a good change. It's also a way sometimes for people to say, I've been told all my life I can't. Well, I can. And Mm -hmm. this is what I'm going to do to either prove it to others or prove it to myself. Right. We had a a wonderful guest a few episodes ago, Janet Lynn Morrison, Mm -hmm. and she talked about a major change in her life. And it was a decision, a moment of decision Mm -hmm. around her mother. And it was fascinating. It was a trying experience. She made the decision and it changed her life forever. Mm -hmm. So these things are possible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The other interesting element about change is the relationship between the speed of change of individuals and the speed of change of the environment that surrounds us as individuals. So you can have quick changes happening in society around you, but your idea of change is much slower. So you might resist, for example, the rural versus the the urban divide, if you like. Right. The rural environments take a lot longer to change because there's a more conservative nature there. And things move more slowly in the countryside. It's a more natural, actually, 
flow of evolution because nature itself can take a long time to change. Right. right? Nature is the gauge. Yeah, but in the city, people are used to change. The city is this chaotic mix of movement and change and new experiences. And so people in the city, in urban environments, kind of expect change to happen more quickly Mm -hmm. and accept it more quickly than those in rural environments. Do you think after the pandemic has settled down, so to speak, and people are not as afraid that we're going to see some of these societal changes that you're referring to in in terms of inequities and that sort of thing? Or are we going to go back to kind of a a new normal, which is sort of the same normal as before with some minor changes? Are you talking about what I think is going to happen or what I hope is going to happen? (laughs) What you think is going to happen. It will depend on how long and how severe this thing is, in my opinion. The longer this drags on, the more likelihood there's going to be more permanent change. To what things? For example, school openings or things that are constantly being debated with regards to the severity of the virus or yeah. whether it's, you know, mm-hmm. whether it should be mandating masks, this, that, this, that. Okay. The longer this drags on, the more pressure will be put on institutions, economies, et cetera, et cetera. So it will break certain lines that haven't been broken yet. Uh-huh. Because it hasn't been sustained long enough. Yeah. Let's say that you are untouchable in terms of your wealth, in terms of whatever, right? So the only way I'm going to get to you or get you to change is to create something that's going to make you look at something differently than what it is now. You're harder to reach because you're comfortable. You have money, you've yeah. got your health. Why would I change? Right. A traumatic experience that, that lasts for a day or a week, even a month, even people can come through it and not much will change necessarily. But this thing, which is going on a year in November, you have to say that it really started yeah, November, November, December. Yeah. You have to say a year in November. And people are saying that the WHO, the WHO just came out today mm-hmm. on the September 4th, 2020 and said, that there will not likely be a vaccine readily available to a mass amount of people until the middle of 2021. But even if that's the case, there's already 25 or 30% of people say they're not going to take it. I know, but that <laughs> that time frame alone is, yeah. is what you're talking about. It's extending yes. this situation into the middle of next year. And people are already in the streets of Berlin and uh, London and other mm-hmm. places around the world resisting these measures and the extension of them as the curves have dropped. And so I think we're going to see a lot more of this kind of civil unrest Mm -hmm. as time wears on. And there is a vast number of people out there who are currently complying, for example, with the mandatory mask orders Mm -hmm. in many parts of the world, who will happily and have happily fallen into the habit Oh, don't forget your mask. Mm -hmm. It's not about when will this mask thing end? We need to get to that place and lose these masks and not talk about a new normal. Mm -hmm. No, many of these people have accepted that is the new normal. Mm -hmm. And they have changed in a sense. Talk about change. They have changed their habits. And the longer it wears on, the more that habit will be locked in. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm concerned about. That the new normal is a new habit which is going to be harder to break. And then people won't be comfortable in each other's presence without masks. The whole thing we talked about before, how long it's going to take for Mm -hmm. people to reconnect in a way, which creates a kind of global psychic climate. 
which is what we have right now. Yes, it's supposed to be for safety, da 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 There's lots of words around it, but it's toxic to the human innate need to connect with each other right. at a more intimate level. And the longer you keep people apart like that and make that into a new normal, the worse it will be for society. That's my opinion. So nothing will change until this viral situation is alleviated, till the fear is reduced, until people can sort of get back into their own skin again and not be all over the damn place. But some people are already there. Yeah, I know, I know. The, the problem is it's probably not the majority. Exactly, exactly. So there's that side of it, and there's also the side of the neocortex, if you like, sort of the newer part of the brain, not the reptilian brain, but the newer part of the brain. The way we can talk ourselves out of change Oh. Our sophisticated brains can say, well, maybe we don't need to change now. Maybe we can change next week because things are kind of going well right now. Why would I change after all? Things are okay. They don't care. We don't care. Nah. So, yeah, change can be hampered by our intelligence, if you like. In fact, psychotherapists will tell you that the more intelligent the patient, the more difficult it is to reach them in some ways because they have a way of self-deluding themselves and talking themselves out of the truth about who they really are. You can find ways of rationalizing. We do it all the time. We rationalize our action or our non-action all the time. Well, I was too busy. Well, it wasn't for me to act. You know. Mm. Well, I'm not that fat, really, when you think about it. Do you think we do the same thing societally? Yes, all the time. The habits, we talk ourselves, the consensus reality that we share, we rationalize why things are the way they should be and the way they are. And so we don't really push for change. Unless you're someone like Greta Thunberg, who's a 15 year old who doesn't give a damn about consensus reality and mm. tradition and history and economics and capitalism and all that bullshit. She's just looking at the planet that is dying and she is angry. And that's a person who is a change agent. That's why I admire her so much. So letting go of traditional habits and ways of thinking is instrumental to making changes. It is the way of making changes. There's no other way than to get rid of your habits. So how do we close this off? Yeah, change as a way of life. That's what we need to think about now. Don't resist it. Give in. Well... That's what life is about. It's constant change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Again, we'd love to hear your comments. Yeah, and an audio book could be a bonus if you contribute. Yeah, and we have a little button on our website. You just press and record. Exactly. Ciao, Harry. Ciao, Peter. The Sill Podcast is a Connecting Dots Media production. Available at thesillpodcast.com.